With heavy lift vehicles coming back into focus, we wanted to spend a bit of time celebrating the original icon, the Saturn V. And to do this, we're joined by John Duncan, who set up and runs ApolloSaturn.com, an incredible online resource dedicated to the Apollo Saturn hardware. We love hearing from you with your thoughts on what we're doing. You can do this via our social media pages at Space and Things Podcast on Threads, Instagram, and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website. And please consider joining us over at patreon.com forward slash space and things. But right now, it's time for episode 170 of the Space and Things Podcast. You're listening to Space and Things with Emily Carney and Dave Giles. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles. And welcome to episode 170 of the Space and Things podcast. How are you doing, Emily? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Not not much happening here. It's just, uh, it's actually cold in Florida this morning. No way. And I'm just, I know, right? And I'm just sitting here trying to stay warm with the with the kitty cat. So I'm good. So how are you doing, Dave? Yeah, I'm good. I love the fact that you're saying it's cold and you're still sitting there wearing a T-shirt. And here I am wrapped up yeah. in a hoodie with thermal trousers on and everything. <laughs> well, everything's everything's relative. It's, when I say cold, when I say cold, okay, let me explain what I mean. When I say it's cold outside to those who live in Canada and the UK and most of the rest of the world, it's probably like 10 degrees Celsius, 10 degrees to 15 degrees Celsius. Not, it's really not that, not that cold. Chilly. But for us, we, we it's would cold. call that chilly, I think. Okay. Parky. <laughs> okay. For us, that's freezing. So yeah. So exactly. It, it, for us, that's very cold. Everything's a little relative in Florida. You know, for us, hot is also very different from the rest of the world. Hot is like atomic. So anyway, how you doing, Dave? I'm doing good. Hey. A year ago this week, we met in person for the first time. Yes, 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 yes. And hopefully, I think we're going to do that again. I don't want to spoil soon. anything, but I think we're going to do that again pretty soon. Nah, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Yeah, More it'll on that be later. Awesome. Anyway, yes. let's crack on with this week's main feature. So with the latest Starship test flights and the Artemis program hype, which is building towards the launch of its first crewed mission next year, and some leaks of some images of Blue Origin getting closer to testing their heavy launch vehicle, the new Armstrong, we wanted to spend some time talking about an icon. It hasn't flown for over 50 years, but the images of it launches are very much ingrained into the consciousness of society. Yes, the Saturn V, and also the family of rockets with which it belongs. Developed in the 1960s, the Saturn V is still considered one of the most powerful launch vehicles to date. It was over 363 feet tall and consisted of three stages. The S1C first stage was powered by five F1 engines. The S2 second stage was powered by five J2 engines. And the S4B third stage was powered with a single J2 engine. Fully fueled, it weighed 6.2 million pounds, which is about 400 elephants. And (laughs) for you people who don't like either metric nor imperial units, 400 elephants. And it could generate 7.6 millions of thrust, creating more than more power than 85 Hoover dams. It could launch 130 tons into Earth orbit or 50 tons to the moon. 
Yep, it was developed at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, led by Werner von Braun. Formal development of the Saturn V started in January 1961, although at this point it was called the C-5 rocket. Its first uncrewed test flight was on November 9th, 1967, a flight called Apollo 4, and it was followed by a second uncrewed test flight, the Apollo 6 mission, which took place in April 1968, a launch which saw the rocket suffer a number of anomalies yet it still managed to get the command module into orbit. Just eight months after that launch, three humans were strapped in and sent to the moon on the Apollo 8 mission, and the rocket was then used for all of the remaining Apollo missions until Apollo 17. The final launch of the Saturn V rocket was in 1973 when it launched a Skylab space station into orbit. However, the vibrations during that launch meant the station didn't get into orbit in the most wonderful (laughs) of condition, but that's something we've talked about at length in previous episodes this year. Let's not forget as well that the Saturn V survived being struck by lightning during the launch of Apollo 12. It really was built that well. There are three places in the world where you can visit a Saturn V rocket. Kennedy Space Center in Florida, Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, and the US Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama. And there is also a first stage of a Saturn V at the Infinity Science Center in Mississippi. Don't forget that you've also got the Saturn 1B rocket, which carried five crewed missions into Earth orbit, too, on Apollo 7, three Skylab missions, and the Apollo-Soyuz mission, the smaller brother of the Saturn V, but yet it still had a similar and iconic look. There are still some of these out there in the wild at museums to visit, too, and I know there's a really nice one at Kennedy Space Center, but today we're talking to John Duncan who set up the website ApolloSaturn.com over 20 years ago, which is an incredible reference site for anyone who wants to know more about the details on those rockets. So let's see what he has to say. Satisfaction or your money back. It's space and things. So welcome, John. Uh, it's great to have you with us today. So first, uh, we ask most guests this question on space and things. What got you into spaceflight, and was it one event, or was it several events? Well, I believe I was four years old when Apollo 11 landed. I remember the animation of the barbecue mode between the Earth to the moon. And, of course, I got a, a Saturn V, an Airfix Saturn V rocket for Christmas, assembled by my dad, unpainted with decals stuck on it. So, I mean, I've always enjoyed space. It, there was a period there where... I, you know, you get to be a teenager, a late teenager, early twenties, you kind of drift away from it, but then you, eventually you come back to it. And that's how I wound up at the Kennedy Space Center shooting film. Remember film? Yes. I've actually recently started shooting film again and it's so much fun, but yes, carry on. Sorry. I digress. One day I just, we were living in Georgia at the time, about, about four hours from Kennedy Space Center. And I was like, I need to go down there and, and shoot some photos because I wanted to build a a Saturn V for the first time in who knows how long. So I drove all the way down there and it turns out that whereas the rocket was laid outside the VAB, it was, they had taken it and refurbished it. So it wasn't available to look at. Ah. I did go back and after they got it on display and I remember taking four rolls of 36 exposure film with my Nikon FM2, I shot all the film in the first 
30 minutes I was there <laughs> and then had to go to the gift shop, buy more film and shoot more. But at this point, you know, like, okay, I've spent 65 or 70 bucks on film on top of entry fee and everything else. But I still got all that stuff, all that film that I need to get scanned. Of course, I've done you know all digital for the past 15, 20 years. So things have gotten better. Absolutely. Okay. So you specialize in Apollo hardware in the Saturn rocket series. So what drove you and continues to inspire you to research these areas of space hardware? Because some of it is really quite obscure. You know, it's not just the Saturn V or the Saturn 1B. Well, I've always been kind of an engineering nut. I'm not an engineer, but I've always enjoyed studying the technology that we used to get to the moon back then. And I guess it kind of turned into a mini Sherlock Holmes because I started looking into the available photographs in this time was like around 1997. The, the photographs that, that were available weren't all that great. I needed to do more research. So I, I got a hold of the public affairs official at Kennedy and they allowed me, they badged me in. I was able to go to the historical archives in the headquarters building at Kennedy Space Center. I went there 10 times. The first time I just went with me and my notes and nothing else. The second, the, all the other times I had a scanner and everything else. And by the time, uh, you know, by the third time, the two, two ladies that ran it were allowing me to, to actually sit inside the the room and just let me scan whatever I wanted to scan. I just went through everything and scanned wow. all that stuff. And that, that, the idea was to nail down all the details, you know, which I love finding out those little details for, for model making or just, just for the, the thrill of finding it. So you put all this information onto your website, correct? And, and you've shared that with everyone else. That's, uh, which is a wonderful resource. So, so what was your logic behind, behind doing that? Well, at the time when it first started, there was a website called the Saturn V Lodge Vehicle Homepage, and it was started by the late Chuck Corway. He passed away about five years ago, and I was in touch with him. This was back in the Usenet days when we were on SciSpace history. You know, the internet wasn't wasn't what it is now, and he encouraged me to make my own website, which I did, and I got the name ApolloSaturn.com. It was always about just sharing the knowledge and never, you know, making any money or anything off of or charging anything. I just enjoyed putting it out there and letting people look and let other people build models or just look at the technology. So the Saturn series of rockets really was short lived. There were not a lot of crude missions were flown utilizing, you know, the Saturn V and the Saturn 1B. So could you make a case for their use maybe after 1975? Well, it depended on what you wanted to do. If you were going to Mars, we probably could have used the Saturn V, but it would have been, you know, incre an incremental sort of a, a deal. And it would have been, whereas Earth Orbit Rendezvous, the original idea for going to the moon used two Saturn Vs at least. Then we went to lunar orbit rendezvous, which we only used one. Going to Mars would have required five, maybe 10 to get to Mars and resupply. So, I mean, there was plenty of things to be done with them, but of course, you know, politics got in the way and NASA was desperately trying to find a future for itself. And they thought that 
by making the cheaper shuttle that could fly once a week, that that, 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 that would be the secret. But of course, it did turn out that way. Okay, so you've done the Space Fest circuit, as we like to call it, during the last decade. So tell us about that and what it's like to meet some of the men who rode these launch vehicles, which you've studied so hard. Oh, they're, they're all pretty humble. Charlie Duke likes to tell me about his cousin who has a similar name to mine every time I meet him. <laughs> um, he was a dentist. I believe he said he was a dentist. You know, back in those, back in the early days, you know, there wasn't that much Novocaine going on. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of like <laughs> even with Shudder whenever he saw my name and he told me the story two or three <laughs> times that I, that I saw him. But it was great. You know, I talked to Fred Hayes about some of the details, you know, a lot of them, some of them remember them, but they also all remember who was the expert on that. I was asking Fred Hayes something about the first stage. He says, you know, you really should ask Borman because he was the expert on the first stage. I was like, oh, okay. I mean, they don't mind talking about it. Did, did they ever make an introduction for you to be able to, like knowing that you were genuinely interested, they help you reach out to the correct people? Oh, not really. I didn't really want to uh, bother anybody. You know, I've, I've been pretty successful on my own uh, digging into things and, you know, finding some of the nagging little details, you know, at infinity was where I discovered the, the alignment marks on the first stage that I've been trying to figure out what they were. Cause in all the period photos, it just looks like a, a tan stripe under the position number. There's four position numbers on it. One, two, three, four, each one has a tan stripe below it. And we could never figure out what that was could never find a manual or a book about it. Obviously there were, but they just weren't saved because it was not that interesting, but turned out to be numbers one through 10 inscribed backwards and bonded to the side of the stage in four places so that you wow. could align the stage down on the mobile launcher. Well, that of course makes a hell of a lot of sense. So did, did, have you also spoken to a lot of the, or any of the people that actually built the rocket? A few here and there on the internet early in the early days, um, Vince Wheellock from Rocketdyne, he sent me photos of the F1 wall bed insulation, which I had been chasing. And I got up with him on, on Usenet and he sent me some photos. So those are all of it. There's only two photos, I think, and they're all over the internet now. That's the thing, you know, you can't keep anything secret from the internet. Not that I was trying, but <laughs> the really good research I did was at the Kennedy Space Center because I was able to just go through and look through the header. I think it was uh, 12 volumes, the uh, LC-39 side activation reports, full of black and white photographs of the pad, 500F. I scanned all those photos in, we're kind of jumping around a little bit, but scanned all those photos in and, and that was the first time those had seen the light of day. And of course, now they're all over Google and all over everywhere, you know, and I don't mind. Everybody gets to use them. Yes. Um, I know a few years ago you brought Ed Gibson to Space Fest, the Skylab 4 astronaut. And of course, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Skylab 4 uh, just now. It did just, a, I think, a week or so, week or two or so ago it, it launched. So tell me a little bit about that experience and hanging out with Ed. Did he ever tell you anything about, you know, what it was like to ride the Saturn 1B? Because not a lot of astronauts got to ride that particular flavor of Saturn. 
Uh, we never really got to that. He was very happy with his time on Skylab because he was uh, a scientist, a solar scientist. Uh, the, the story that, that I usually tell about Ed was, and that's because, I, I sponsored him. So I was sitting, I was sitting to his left at the banquet and Burt Burnett was there also. And the guy across from me says, so tell me about the mutiny. Oh my God. And I looked over at Burt and he looked at me. We looked at Ed <laughs> and everybody else looked at the dude and we're like, that didn't happen. And Ed, Ed just kind of shook his head, but we like to say that we almost saw Ed flip the table. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved to have seen that man, Ed go into game of death mode and just start <laughs> just elbowing people. That would have been exquisite. I would have liked that, but he's a gentleman. So he didn't do it. It was terribly awkward for the rest of us. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. That's not the right question to ask Ed, unfortunately. Uh, All right. So next question, and this is the one everybody's been waiting for. So, you know, we had to ask this. Um, the SA500F is perhaps one of the most widely used flavors of the Saturn V in movies and in models, even though it never left the pad. It never flew. So tell us your thoughts on that. And what do you think the ugliest version of this particular rocket is? I know there's the Skylab 500F that you like to drag out every Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I do like to drag that out. It was a NASA artist concept of what Skylab looked like with a pad. I mean, it, it's terrible by our standards, but back then some some artists had to Photoshop that quote unquote onto an image. But you know, 500F gets a lot of a lot of trash talk, and I trash talk it constantly. And it's not because I don't like it; it's because the first kits by Monogram and Airfix that came out. Basically, the paint schemes and the and the instructions were that. It was only until just about 10 years ago, I think, that somebody finally, I think it was Airfix, updated their instructions to put the correct paint, paint scheme in there. People would build the 500F and go, look, Apollo 11. No, it's not Apollo <laughs> 11. It's 500F. It's not the same thing. Uh, it's just always been kind of frustrating that, these people spend hundred billion dollars on a movie and they can't Google something to figure out what there's, what it needs to look like. I mean, even from the earth to the moon and the Saturn five didn't look right, you know, with the, the paint job was wrong and something I've kept to myself. Cause I got to look at it, some of the footage from first man, uh, they showed Saturn five launching and then flight. It's something I was talking about with Rick Sternbach, we were taking screenshots of that footage we realized that, of course, we knew that it wasn't real footage, but you could tell that it was probably the terrible Dragon 172nd scale kit that they used to shoot that footage or, or the 3D components. It's not accurate either, but I just decided to keep it to myself because <laughs> everybody wanted to see First Man, obviously. It doesn't detract yeah. from the movie. I think the 500F has become a meme. In the last few years, my favorite version is the uh, shuttle 500F, where they just slap a shuttle on top of the Saturn 500F. I've seen that. I think I've seen that well, a few well, times, and I wanted to, like, stab my eyeballs out because I'm like, this is horrible. Like, this is that, awful. Okay. That was a study. That was a study <laughs> for uh, the first stage for the shuttle was going to be a an S1C, the first stage of the Saturn V. So, 
It would have looked weird though, because it has some giant fins on it, huge fins. Just to make sure everybody understands, I do have a model of 500F here in the same scale as my others. Uh, you know, I built one yeah. and took it to a contest years ago. So it's not that I don't want to build it. It just, I want to make sure that when people think they're building Apollo 11 or whatever, that, that they make yeah. it look like it should look. So totally understand. For those who perhaps haven't got a clue what's going on right now, the more the more casual space listener uh, or, or space follower, what does this all mean? So what is the 500F? How did it come about and, and why? What is it? Yeah, and how did that end up being the standardized paint decal for models and and the movies? How did that happen? Why didn't they use just the, the one? And, and did every Apollo uh, Saturn V launch have the same paint scheme or are they all slightly different? Well, 500F was stacked first in 1967. It was the first stack. It was just like when, when Enterprise was stacked at the shuttle right. pad for the first time. All the models everyone was making was of Enterprise with the white painted tank and all of that. Well, go back to 67, 500F had, you know, the first S1C, first S2, the S, first S4B. Now the S4B paint job was, was different, not necessarily wrong, but it had been used as a trailblazer for the Saturn 1B in pad test. The paint scheme was evolving and but when they went to build the models, of course, the model maker and companies are like, Ooh, let's hurry up and get on this to make models kits. Of course. So they went to the first thing that they hit could look at. And that was this 500 F stacked on the pad, took photos and got references from NASA and, and ran with it. But it became kind of just ingrained in the culture, I guess. Uh, later on, there's kind of an intermediate between 500 F and let's say Apollo four or Apollo six or Apollo eight, the black stripes on the first stage originally crossed over onto the intertank on 500 if it did. And they'd also did on Apollo four, six, and maybe eight, I can't remember, but they found that it got too hot. So by the time they started stacking Apollo four, they had painted over those stripes on the intertank. And that's pretty much set the standard. The only thing that changes between missions is the location of some of the, some of the identification numbers. Of course, the command module, service module was different on four and six, but it's pretty much the same once you get to Apollo 8 and on up. It's pretty much the same. It is, was just a few variations. The Saturn V, very impressively, actually, because the more I think about it, I'm like, it's actually pretty impressive for a, a rocket system. Despite the fact that it was so very large, it had remarkably few failures. The only flights that I can think of that had I guess you consider partial failures were Apollo 6 and, and Skylab. Why do you think that is? Because as you can see now, and I'm about to, we're about to get hate mail because I'm mentioning this, you know, you got Starship now, and that's an enormous heavy lift rocket, and they're testing it. I'm not dissing, I'm not dissing SpaceX, everybody, but they're testing it, and we can see how difficult it is to get a heavy lift rocket like that off the ground, whereas the Saturn V had a pretty remarkable record. Apollo 4... That was the first shot integrated, and it was a pretty good success. How do you think does that speak to the the heritage of the Saturn V? Well, NASA was it is all about testing, 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 testing. That's 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 what the the downfall of the Russian N one was is they never really tested 
plus back then, you know, we didn't have computers that would analyze things and tell you, well, you're going to have a lot of vibration and your rocket's going to fall apart. But NASA tested everything way more than they necessarily needed to. But obviously back those days, if you didn't test, you couldn't guess. So you better test something. And Apollo 6, you know, they had problems with the J2s on the, on the S2 and on the S4B. It's just one of those things where, okay, well, it didn't do that the first time, but it did it on Apollo 6, so now we got to fix it. And Skylab, uh, the workshop, micrometeoroid shield coming off, it's just may not have been tested enough or the concept it didn't work as well as they thought it was going to. So what is your favorite Apollo or Saturn-related piece of hardware? Well, we do have uh, S1C15 and S1C14, the two remaining flight stages, S1C14, the, the Houston assemblage of the Saturn V is, uh, it's in pretty good shape and they've, they've cleaned it and painted it and they've got the stencils on it. Like it should be, it looks really good. Uh, I didn't get to spend nearly enough time with it when I did visit, uh, I'm going to go back, but I, I do enjoy that one. You know, I, I live here close to Huntsville, but that's a non-flight Saturn V that's on display here, but it is the second stage of 500F. Something about Boeing and Rockwell, they, they used lettering and stencils all over the first stage and it makes it so complex, so complicated to model, especially in a, like one, one forty first scale where the, the diameter is only about three inches of diameter. It's really difficult to model, but it's just so many details. When I went to infinity for the first time and the museum director came outside and I'm like climbing all over his, his stage. And I got out and I said, Hey, um, I said, I told him what I was doing and, and why I was doing it. And he said, well, go ahead. So I'm climbing all over the front, the front end, the back end underneath, <laughs> laying underneath on the ground, taking photos of everything. It's, there's just so many little details that, that you, you almost can't model. 172nd scale is, begins to be the scale where you can, can replicate all that stuff. I just like building Saturn V models. The point now is to coalesce all this information and take, there's only two kits in one with 44 scale. There's the rebel monogram and the airfix. It's in to combine those parts to make the best model possible <laughs> of the full stack. That's amazing. That's what you do. Have you ever, have you ever reached out to rebel or airfix to try and get them to correct things? I think Rick Sternbach has done that. I haven't, I don't have the, political capital that Rick Sternbach has. Airfix did correct their instructions and made better decals. They also fixed the underscale spacecraft. Rebel Monogram never has. They're, they just come out with a different set of decals that basically looks the same. But you can buy Rick's decals, and so you don't need those. But I've never tried that. Not sure where it really makes any difference at this point. I, I just love seeing a museum piece that's been correctly restored and has the right markings on it. Because then when somebody else wants to build a model or paint a picture or whatever they're doing, they can go that to there and see what it lo really looks like and not have to do, you know, you don't really want to use like the first stage at Kennedy is, is, is a non-flight stage, but it's been painted to look like Apollo 11's first stage. And it looks pretty good, but there's some differences. And you have, you have to know, and I see people building models with those 
incorrect details all the time. And, you know, I, I used to chase people about that five or 10 years ago, but now it's just gotten to where it doesn't matter anymore. Everyone gets annoyed <laughs> when you, when you are, when you're a know-it-all. So I stopped being a know-it-all. I feel your pain. All right. <laughs> I feel your pain. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm the most annoying of all. So the Saturn Apollo program, as most people know, is, is sadly obsolete, uh, hasn't flown since 1975. Why do you think it's especially important to preserve some of it? And are there any pieces you'd like to see perhaps restored to their original glory that are still around? Well, we have to preserve preserve it because that's the only tangible thing that the public can go and touch. And when I say touch, stand under, be dwarfed by the mag magnificent size of it. Look at there and say, this is what we did. This is how we got there. You want to hope that it inspires the next generation to get involved in and Artemis or Starship at some point when they're finished blowing things up. I mean, it's, we have to blow things up to learn, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's why I put the disclaimer when I talked about Starship, because I didn't want us to start getting like death threats. I love all rockets. I don't care who's flying them. China, it don't matter. I love all rockets. I watched Starship's second launch. It was amazing. Do they have problems? Yes, but... Everyone used to us. Falcon 9 had problems too. It took them a while to figure that out. Oh, yeah. It's all, you know, just that first we're straying off a little bit, but Elon can afford to, to do things in faster pace than the government and NASA can because they're responsible to Congress and the American people theoretically. So they just can't be flying stuff left and right and blowing things up. It looks bad. Elon's like, no, I'm going to just blow everything up until I figure it out. I, I don't know about you, but I've always sort of, I can't say regret because I wasn't alive during that time, but I always feel sad that that system wasn't used more. I, I kind of, I wish it was used after 1975. Maybe they could have had another Skylab and they could have done logistics missions or something using the Saturn system. That would have been pretty cool. You know, I'm a big alternate history person. Do you ever think about that possibly, you know, with utilizing the Saturn system and what do you think it may have looked like? We could have kept flying the S the Saturn one B would have been a good crew crew transport. If we had built a space station in the seventies or another space station, a bigger space station, now, whether it would have been super cost effective, it took us until the beginning of this, of the flying the space station. And then still until about 10 years ago to start actually commercial resupply, launching rockets every, every week. Mm -hmm. I mean, SpaceX has shown that you can do it. So I remember thinking, wow, it would be great if these are reusable back in the seventies and eighties, yeah. we could reuse these. It'd be great. But of course they weren't really designed for that. And the Saturn series was kind of overbuilt for a reason. And Falcon nine's built to be what it needs to be, I think. But I think it, it would have been neat if we could have, I could have watched them go into Mars in the eighties, which is originally the. The, the point of it. Do you feel we will ever have a rocket as iconic as the Saturn series of rockets? Because we're, we're 50 years on now, and Emily and I talk a lot about the, the idea that regardless of what Starship or what, what comes next, th that early era of, this, of space flight will always hold a special place in the annals of history because... It's the first time we did it. Um, and even now, 50, 60 years later, 
you see it in advertising all the time. You see the images of those rockets going up are, are still everywhere to the point where I think some people think they're just com- computer animations that people reuse. But do, do you think we'll ever have a rocket more iconic than the Saturn V? Or do you think there is one that, that, that may surpass it now? Well, it's all about context. I mean, you've got Saturn V and the Saturn family of rockets that got us there, got us on the moon, launched the first space station for us. And now you've got Falcon 9, which is doing, you know, commercial resupply, flying astronauts to the space station. Uh, but it's, the market is wide open now. It's growing rapidly. You know, Falcon 9 is going to have a check mark by it for first reusable system. It was designed for that. The Saturn system wasn't designed for that, although they do do studies on recovering some of the boosters. But we'll always have the Saturn V for going to the moon for the first time. And now it's going to be, where are we going to, how are we going to get to Mars? Mm. And we assume it's going to be Starship. We're waiting to see that. You always remember your first car and that's the, that's the Saturn V for, for us is getting to the moon. <laughs> yes. And that I think is the per- perfect place to end. Actually, that's a really great soundbite there. The Saturn V, your first car. I like that. Yep. <laughs> that's re- it that's is, really cool. For many of us, it was our first taste of what spaceflight was. So that's a great analogy. Well, John, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We really appreciate your insight into what the Saturn V is. And uh, well, hopefully people will go and check out your website and some of the amazing photographs that are on there as well. Um, and, and we hope to see you again sometime. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Just a vehicle for space memes. It's Space and Things with Emily Carney and Dave Giles. That was amazingly informative. John, I've known for years. He's a really good guy. He's one of the good guys in the space community. There's a lot of good guys, but he's he's really awesome. Uh, he's a fount of information about the Saturn V because somebody like me who was born after that, I really honestly did not have a lot of knowledge about a lot of the hardware and the components and things like that. So John has really personally been a big help to me. And his website is really an invaluable resource, I feel, uh, for the entire space community because, you know, as we get further and further away from Apollo, I mean, it's been over 50 years or so. I mean, Mm -hmm. I feel like some of the knowledge, you know, I worry that we're going to lose some of it. And it's good that someone like John, who's like dedicated to the the hardware heritage, you know, is preserving it. I think that's incredibly important for people in the future to learn how it worked, you know, and especially the Saturn system because it was so, Im- I-, I still feel like the Saturn V system was just so impressive in how good it was. For a rocket of its size, for what it had to do, I mean, it literally had to take people to the moon. It had remarkably few incidences with it where it did not work correctly and one of it unfortunately was Skylab but we won't talk about that but I mean it really was pretty solid for a for a for a launch vehicle and I think one of the this is just one of my opinions but I think one of the biggest kind of tragedies of human spaceflight was that it was retired pretty quickly I almost wish if there had been a budget during the 1970s we would have had an alternate history like For All Mankind where we could have kept flying them because I, I think they worked so well. They were a pretty reliable launch system for its time. Would that have continued? Who knows? But still, I, I love that John sort of continuing the heritage of that those amazing vehicles and 
and also the 1B. I, I think the 1B is sort of the dark horse of space flight because it's another system. It didn't fly very much. There's very few people who can say, hey, I flew on the Saturn 1B, but it did its job great. I wish we could make a case for having used it during like the 70s for if there had been a space station. If they needed logistics or something during the 70s, they could have used that. I really love John's website. If you have any interest in the Saturn family or Apollo hardware, you got to go visit it. It's a really invaluable resource. And he is really uh, detailed and he's very precise in what he does. And I, I personally, I really, he says he's a know-it-all. Personally, I really appreciate that because I do have, as a historian, I, I, there's that part of me that's like, man, I hope this stuff doesn't just, this knowledge doesn't go away. I really hope it doesn't. These were the first lunar missions. I mean, in a hundred years, we need to know what happened, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Especially as you pointed out, the, the window of operation was so slim that, that, that to have someone who's maintaining and keeping that information alive and accurate is really important. So I, I got a couple of, of, of thoughts to what you've just said, actually. Number one, you said you would love to have seen them fly longer. And obviously I agree with that. But do you think that perhaps the reason it's become so iconic is because it didn't fly any longer? Yes. I, I kind of feel that way as well. I feel like it sounds horrible as much as I love the space shuttle, as much as I love it, it kind of became ubiquitous in a way. Like everybody thought of a space sh- a, a spaceship as a, oh, it's a space shuttle, space shuttle. It couldn't, people think the SpaceX Falcon 9 is a space shuttle. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I feel like I it do. became, it became kind of ubiquitous. Everybody associates space flight with the space shuttle. But I feel like the Saturn V, even though it has been very well represented in pop culture, because it was a moon rocket and because it was flown so so few times, I feel like yeah, it, it is. It, it was kind of an icon. I think for that reason, it was it was enormous and it was something that had a very sort of a specialized purpose. So yeah, I do feel that way. I think it would have. I hate saying that it may have lost its specialness to the. I, to the public or to space fans, I should say. I don't know if I, I honestly feel the public at large tuned out after Apollo 11 because, oh, we already we did that. We've been to the moon. So I think had it flown, you know, perhaps 135 times, I think it would have maybe lost some of its if people would have thought, oh, I, yeah, I could go see a rocket launch this weekend. You know, it would have become something more common. So, yeah, I agree with that. I and I think the people who did see the Saturn V launches, when I talk to them, I'm always like, wow, you actually saw one? Because there are so few launches. And I don't know, there may be even fewer people who saw a Saturn 1B launch, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, prob- probably because, I mean, especially Skylab, the, the public had checked out so much by that point. Yeah. Who was, who was, I mean, Apollo 7 probably was viewed by quite a few people because that would have been excitement. I was getting back on track and the first launch since the fire and all that kind of stuff but after that who knows the the Skylab and 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 Polo Soyuz maybe not so much so I really think that that is one of the reasons why it's held in such in such high regard is because it was so flew so so few times and obviously the importance of it is is crazy in terms of it took took us to the moon for the first time but you look at Falcon 9 launches and and I love watching Falcon 9 launch I would watch a Falcon 9 launch every day I love it landing, this, that, and the other. 
but people were already less excited by it than they went did when it yeah. first started happening. And the Falcon 9 boosters that are on display are less interesting for people going to see the Saturn V or even the Saturn 1B. Yeah. I think people are less impressed, even though by an engineering standpoint, the Falcon 9 is a much more impressive rocket in some in many ways. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it's it, technology has advanced so much. It can land autonomously, whereas the Saturn V couldn't. I think there's a lot of emotional attachment to the Saturn Vs as well, because I've seen people, honestly, I'm not making this up. I've seen people cry seeing the Saturn V like on display. You know, I've seen people, you know, with tears in their eyes looking at it. I don't really see them looking at other rockets like that. Well, I think people do with the shuttle. I think the sh- that's I true. The shuttle see- they do. They the shuttle they yeah. do, especially at Atlantis. I've seen people break down during that, but you know, I don't see people breaking down it like the Titan too. As much as I love the Titan too, but I think it's a badass rocket. Personally, the Titan two is my favorite of launch vehicles. But I don't see people, you know, breaking down at it. I've seen people crying looking at the Saturn V because it's just, I think because it's just so, like, big, it symbolizes so much. I don't know. Maybe that's just me, but that's what I've gathered from that. Well, I I, I agree. My, my other thoughts about the Saturn V and the Saturn family is how quickly that came together. Now, yes. I know that I know that it's heritage hardware in many ways i know that it has lineage through the jupiter program and the same the same core group of designers were involved in a number of rockets up to that stage so it's not like they suddenly went we're going to build this rocket here yeah. it is yeah well, though these people is. have been work yeah exactly these people have been working on a number of irritations of different rockets and and it just so happened they called this series the saturn rocket exactly and it didn't it didn't come out of nowhere is my point but yeah. I think that's another thing that we forget. Again, you look at Starship and you look at SLS, Space Launch System, they both seem to be taking a lot longer. Even Starship, which we know has got more budget, perhaps, and they're doing this type of testing, which is apparently supposed to speed things up. It doesn't appear like it's going to be done and be ready and successful in the time frame. Yeah that the Saturn rocket was. So I think the, the people that were building those, the people that designed them, Werner von Braun, that team, yes, that's a complicated history. Yeah. Uh, but That's a show for another did, day. What? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But they knew what they were doing. And yeah. it feels like we lost, and, and I may be offending some engineers here, but it feels like we lost a lot of expertise through the 70s and 80s. I, and and that may be really yeah. really harsh, but as someone who wasn't alive in any of those eras, I don't know what happened, but something happened where yeah. we just took our foot foot off the gas in terms of trying to think about the next step and trying yeah. to push the envelope, which is what happened up to up to the Saturn Five. It was push, 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 push. Let's build the most advanced thing we possibly can, and now let's take a foot off the gas. Yeah. I know that some of that is budget, probably a lot of that is budget, but I think it's a real shame. And and the, the people yeah. that knew what they were doing then, I feel like coming off, taking our foot off the gas there actually put us back because by the time we were ready to put our foot back on the gas, that that expertise had gone. Yeah. Those guys Does that are make all, sense? A lot of those guys are gone now. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Or, or even if they hadn't gone, 
even if they're not dead, even though they were still alive at that point, they weren't as sharp as they would have been back yeah. when when they were doing it. And it was all a quick series of quick things. So your mind was just on that different plane of of operation. We're talking about people who were using slide rules and, and not digital calculators or computers to help model things or simulate things. It, it was very rudimental, and yet they in six years, built this rocket. I, I totally agree with you. And and I know, like you said, it's partly budget related, you know, because the budget did shrink at the end of the 1960s. And sometimes I just, I just have thoughts like, why was this decision made? Why couldn't we just kept on flying the Saturns? Like I said, I know it's a budget issue, but why couldn't we have just kept flying the Saturns? And yeah, I know they're expendable, but we could have had, more space stations we could have had more deep space missions things like that i i do think about that a lot i feel like um we stopped dreaming or something i don't know it's the weirdest thing i can't i can't i don't even know how to describe it like you said it was like oh push 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 we're gonna do the most spectacular things of all times you know we're gonna send science missions in a freaking car to the moon i mean that's just insane and okay it's over done what you know we're just getting started. Now it's over 50 years later and we're just thinking about going back now. On the flip side of that, I think it was so advanced for the time that the yeah. world wasn't ready for it. And and I think that may be part of the, the reason why there was that void of imagination or, or whatever it was. Well, I don't know what, what it is. And again, if yeah. I, I don't want to offend anyone who may have been working on those programs, but I think it kind of just, everything had to catch up to the to the Saturn, you know, and uh, yeah. I, again, I agree with you. I, I think it should have kept flying. I, I know I'm not in control of the budget and, until until at least the shuttle uh, the shuttle had been developed a little bit more and and yeah. uh, and we knew what we were getting. At least when the shuttle program was ended, it was because the plan was in place for a next step to replace it, which would be so much more advanced. And I know that the shuttle was supposed to be that, but they slammed the budget, whereas actually the commercial program was saying, we're going to put in money from other places and actually yeah. more money is going to be spent on rocketry than it was previously. So uh, it was at least a plan yeah. of action. And I know yeah. people didn't like it at the time, but but the, the difference between the end of shuttle and end of Apollo is, is that plan yeah. was more thought through. For shuttle, it was basically like, we have an idea, we have a concept for a vehicle that we're going to build and we need money for it. That's what they had. That's what they had. Yeah, we have a, we have a shuttle we want to build and we have approval for it. But... I think the Saturn V, I think it was not just a majestic vehicle, but also it was really good at what it did. If you ever need to, I'll just end with this. If you ever uh, get bored and you want to watch a Saturn V launch, it's probably not like seeing the real thing. The Apollo 11 movie launch sequence. Oh my Amazing. God. That is the best launch I've ever seen in my life like i used to watch hail columbia because i was obsessed with that launch and i still love it it is now number two that the apollo yeah. 11 launch is number one it's just freaking mind-blowing <laughs> agreed so yeah i think what john does is amazing and as you point yes. out this the other point i had with what you said earlier it's about the fact that he's an attention to detail man and i like this so you see this on hipsters quite a lot where people perhaps are talking and you see people who are volunteers at the museums saying, I'd like to know more about what this Saturn V is, what the parts were supposed to have done 
and for what mission and so on and so forth because you see a complete Saturn V stack on its side at KSE and you assume that that would have been one that flown the next mission, for example. But that's not the case. They're kind of a mix yep. mix of a few different parts from different Saturn V parts that were left around. Um, and he knows all of that. He's someone that, that's got that information. And if you have a question of what parts are left from what would have been Apollo 18, for example, he may be able to tell you. Some of them may have got used on Skylab, I think, but yep. but he'll know those answers. And exactly, you see these conversations yeah. happen online a lot in various forums, and, and he's someone that, that you, you want answering those questions because he knows it. He's already done that work. He's already looked at the paperwork. He's already asked these questions, uh, and that's why it's great to have people like John and his website around. So please check out the link to that in the show notes as well as any other social media links that I've got for John. So please check them out if you're interested and you have a question you'd like to ask him directly. Uh, also, the Patreon page will have the full unedited video of that interview. So check that out as well. If you're a Patreon member, head over to patreon.com forward slash space and things. Where, mispro- Where mispronunciation is entertainment, it's space and things. So Emily, what's caught your eye in spaceflight this week? There's this really cool video. It's on YouTube and it's by Primal Space. It was just released a few days ago and it's called Voyager's 15 Billion Mile Software Update. And it basically explains Voyager's computer system, its software. The Voyager spacecraft, of course, are the spacecraft that have been up in space since 1977. So uh, they're operating on technology... Emily technology at this point um, because I was born uh, not very long after those things were launched. But this video is really fascinating. It it really is a good uh, dive into how the Voyager spacecraft, Voyagers 1 and 2, they're still upgrading them 46 years after they've been launched. Um, It explains Voyager's computer system. I think the Voyagers only have 70 kilobytes of computing power, or power, I should say, not powder, power, which is... um, Pretty incredible when you consider what your personal computers at home and your you know your laptops have. Yeah. It also explains a uh, Voyager software. It does have software on board. It obviously um, it does not have an operating system or an iOS or anything like that. It, it, it's a little before that time. It doesn't have Windows or iOS, Mac software on it or anything like that. Um, it also explains Voyager's programming language, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, and I think the video goes into some t- detail about this, Voyager uses the assembly computer language with some Fortran in it. It's an old computer language. It's right. not generally something that's used very uh, frequently. If you know what it is, you may want to invest in some Tylenol and maybe an anti-aging serum <laughs> or some retinol because you're, you're getting up there. You're starting to get up there a little bit, so... Another thing that it also explains is it explains how uh, they've done updates to the vehicle upgrades over the years, which to me is fascinating considering that the Voyagers are freaking billions of miles out in the in the solar. Actually, they're beyond the solar system uh, at this point. They're out in interstellar space. They're in the universe. (laughs) So I love the Voyager spacecraft. We've talked about them several times on this show. I just think it's fascinating that we've still got these spacecraft with the very 1970s technology, very early 70s technology, and they're still chugging along out there doing their thing. They're returning data 
about um, the conditions in, in interstellar deep space, which is just, I, I'm not sure if anybody expected that would happen when they were launched. Mm. That's uh, what I, what caught my eye this week. I just think that stuff is incredible. I love, I love reading about it. I love learning more about that stuff. I'm not really a, a software or a hardware person, um, but I love learning about it. I think it's awesome. So Dave, what has caught your eye this week? You may remember a few weeks ago, we were talking to Mark Peller, the VP of Vulcan Development at ULA. Well, we've got a, uh, a launch date for the Vulcan Centaur, which should be launching on Christmas Eve. Um, so we may yes. see the first Vulcan Centaur launching there. on Christmas Eve, which will be very cool. And I look forward to your report. Hopefully, uh, that I mean, these dates always move, so maybe we'll have a Christmas launch. But we've got a preliminary date, which is... Christmas Eve, which is really cool. But the thing that has really caught my eye, which I've really enjoyed. Now, I remember talking about this when this story first broke, and this is a while back now, when the Australian Space Agency revealed that it was asking the public to name their first lunar ro- rover. Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah, I remember. I'm I'm really uh, interested in what they're going to come up with. Okay, so they've got a short list of four, and they're asking for people to vote, and you've got until December the 1st to vote. Uh, with a, a name be announced on December the 6th. There are four different name options, two which I think are really good Australian options and two which are just hilarious. So you've got Coolamon, uh, which is a multi-purpose, and I'm quoting this from a space.com article, Coolamon is a multi-purpose tool used for gathering and carrying, and it represents Australia's connection to the land and symbolises the balance between utility and respect for the environment, mirroring the country's approach to space exploration. It also captures the essence of Australia's indigenous heritage, according to the competition's website. So that's Coolamon, which is the first option. And then you've got Kakira, which means moon, uh, which is translated from the corner region in Adelaide, and it signifies this major milestone for Australia in developing a lunar rover. Then we have mateship. Uh, now, you may remember, Emily, when we said this, I said it should be called mate, because they always say, good day, mate. And that's exactly what this is a nod to. Mateship is a <laughs> nod to the country's culture and camaraderie of the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, ANZAC. Whether you're old or young, live in the city or in the outback, we all possess the indescribable trait. Let's say good day, mate, to new horizons and the lunar surface, which is what the officials say in the description. Mateship. And lastly, Ruva, which is a fun reference to the country's iconic animal, the kangaroo. <laughs> that's cute. It is cute. It's cute. Ruver. That's cute. It's cute. Yeah, they're the four four options. Ruva, Mateship, Kakira, or Kulaman. And yeah, go online and vote. Yeah, go online and vote. Yeah, I like Kira. Yeah, Pers- it's nice, that's just it? a personal thing. I think that's nice. Yeah, that's really cool. Smart. I like how they... They give the shout out to the indigenous population as well. I think that's really cool that they're doing that. But mateship, I don't know. That's funny as yeah, hell. I mean, you but know yeah, that mateship's like, going to win, don't you? You know. Yeah, matey mateship matey or something mateship, like that. Exactly. Seriously. Yeah, that's usually the, the ones that win, you know. <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah, may the best one win. That's all I got to say about that. Yeah. So I will put the, uh, I'll put the name. Uh, sorry, I'll put the link for people to go and vote <laughs> in the show notes, as well yes. as other articles which we've talked about today. More Skylab facts? Yes, please. It's space and things. 
Okay, that's all we've got for you this week. So thanks again for joining us. And we hope that you might give us a review or a rating on your podcast provider if your podcast provider allows that. It really does help us out. And please continue to share what we do with your spaceflight-loving friends. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you meet. Things in space, space and things. Okay.